Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, it's all about Russia, and with good reason. The Tsar Nicholas wrote to his sister at the outbreak of the Boer War in October 1899 and said, I am wholly preoccupied with the war between England and the Transvaal. Every day I read the news in the British newspapers from the first to the last line. I cannot conceal my joy at yesterday's news that during General White's sally, two full British battalions and a mountain battery were captured by the Boers. He was beside himself with glee. Yet, a few years after writing this, Russia would be fighting as an ally with Britain against the Germans on the Eastern Front during the First World War. But that was 15 years later. Some of this week's episode is drawn from the book The Russians and the Anglo-Boer War by Apollon Davidson and Irina Filatova, published in 1998. I've also used historian R.W. Johnson's comments at times, too. The characters involved, as usual, are unforgettable. We've met people from all over the world who've had a hand to play in this war, and the Russians were some of the most colourful. By the way, thanks to Sol, who lives in Russia, for prompting this episode. I hope you're not too cold right now. In 1899, the Tsar was particularly interested in the Boer War and Britain's hold on South Africa because the route to India lay via the Cape and Russia had its own designs on India. Way back in 1875, Lord Carnarvon tried to create a South African confederation and justified his grandiose scheme by saying there was a need to defend British interests from Russian ambitions. The Boers disagreed, of course. Then in 1879, the British went to war against the Zulu, and the war office kept a sharp eye on Central Asia while that crisis grew, half expecting the Russians to strike with the British engaged in Africa. Then the first Boer War in 1881, where the British were defeated in battle and negotiated peace with the Boers, gave the Russians more hope. When the second Boer War began in 1899, a young Jan Smuts was highly conscious of Russian interests, and advised his Boer colleagues on the eve of war to try and convince the Tsar to foment an anti-British uprising in India. Transvaal President Kruger had already sent the Russian emigre financier Benzian Aron to represent the Transvaal at Tsar Nicholas's coronation in 1896. That was a mistake because Aron was Jewish and the Tsar would have regarded the choice of such an emissary as an insult. The twists and turns of history would trip him up eventually as we know with the infamous saga involving the mystic called Rasputin. Russian interests clashed with Britons in Central Asia, Iran, the Bosphorus in Turkey, the Mediterranean and the Balkans, as well as over India. And in addition to her vengeful feelings about the Crimean War, Russia felt herself blocked at every turn by Britain. Wildly excited at the thought that the Boers might at last have created the vital crack in the wall of the British Empire, Nicholas rushed off to see the German Kaiser, saying, I intend to set the Emperor on the British, reminding him of his famous telegram to Kruger. Simultaneously, the Russian Foreign Minister tried to interest the French in an anti-British alliance. In order to increase the pressure, Russia then built up its Mediterranean and Atlantic fleets and even courted provocation with a dispatch of four cruisers to the Channel, all because they believed the Anglo-Boer War would weaken the British. Russian troops were moved up to the borders of India and Afghanistan as well. Looking back now, it appears that the Tsar was quite carried away. He was often accused of poor planning, and this was no different. You know, my dear, he told his sister, that I am not arrogant, but 
It is pleasant for me to know that I, and I only, possess the ultimate means of deciding the course of the war in South Africa. It is very simple. Just a telegraphic order to all the troops in Turkestan to mobilize and advance towards the Indian frontier. Not even the strongest fleet in the world can keep us from striking England at this, her most vulnerable point. Unfortunately for the Tsar and for the Boers, this grandiose statement came to nothing. You see, the Germans and French scuttled away, and Russia was in no position to take on Britain without their help. As Johnson notes, what was worse for Tsar Nicholas is that his wife, the Tsarina Alexandra, had her doubts, which was not surprising given that, like the Kaiser, she was Queen Victoria's grandchild and in regular contact with her grandmother. Blood is thicker than nationalist water. But the enthusiasm of the Russian public for the Boer cause knew no such constraints. Books, articles, poems, plays and pamphlets about the Boers poured out. Orchestras played Transvaal, Transvaal, my country, over and over again. Money was collected and sent. Prayers were offered up in every church for a speedy victory against the British and pictures of the Boers were everywhere. Back in 1899, a Russian journalist wrote, Wherever you go these days, you hear the same story. The Boers, the Boers, and only the Boers, he complained. For years on end, and throughout the empire, they were the favorite heroes of popular serials and penny dreadfuls. Restaurants, inns, and cafes were given Boer names, their interiors refurbished in Boer style, and whole new lines of children's toys appeared glorifying the Boers and ridiculing the British. Even the great Russian author Leon Tolstoy, the master of war and peace, was caught up in the wild enthusiasm for the war. He wrote, You know what point I've reached? Opening a paper every morning, I passionately wish to read that the Boers have beaten the British. I am glad when I read about the defeats of the British, it cheers my soul. You see, the respect for the Boers was not only because of the usual nationalist anti-British reasons, but because Russians thought the Boers were like the best sort of Russians, conservative, rural, Christian folk, resisting the invasion of their land by foreigners. The deep historical meaning of this war, wrote one conservative Moscow paper, is that faith, patriotism, the patriarchal family, primordial tribal unity, iron discipline, and the complete lack of so-called modern civilization have become such an invincible force that even the seemingly invincible British have begun to tremble. And another bizarre contradiction, left-wing Russians, who were communists, also loved the Boers. Lenin supported their struggle against imperialism, and the works of Olive Schreiner, who had opposed the British invasion of the Boer republics as a matter of principle, were adopted with a real popular passion. I need to mention just another strange historical twist. South African Communist Party intellectual Ruth First, who was assassinated by an apartheid parcel bomb, published Schreiner's works in 1980 in Russian, but she didn't realize, or perhaps prefer to hide, the full extent of Russian support for her arch-enemies, the Afrikaners, who perfected the apartheid system years later. Her writing was meant to erase the pro-Boer Russian story from memory. It was embarrassing for the Soviets to admit to supporting the Boers when she herself was being trained by Russians in the fight against the Boer descendants, the Afrikaners. History has a way of tripping up political correctness. The 1917 revolution had been so revisionist it had helped wipe Boer mania from Russian general memory. 
and the ANC military wing MK was armed and trained by the Russians during the struggle against apartheid in the 20th century, in the midst of the Cold War. So in 1899, several hundred Russians hurried to South Africa to fight for the Boers, and many worked as nurses and doctors. Furthermore, many of these Russians were Jewish, fleeing from the pogroms of Russia, while others were already in the Transvaal, having joined the Great Gold Rush. Some Russians fought for the British, it's true, but most for the Boers. We don't have a full list, but the figure runs into many hundreds. There was a big problem with the Russians fighting for the Boers. Many were blatantly anti-Semitic too, and yet many were Jewish. This created secondary tensions the Boers tried to counter as it clouded the overall strategy. We've seen how the Irish, for example, brought their home conflicts into the Boer War and how it affected day-to-day -day actions. The Russian contingent caused similar challenges for Boer commanders. In the eyes of anti-Semitic Russian nationalists who flocked to the Boer cause, the Jewish doctors and nurses were not Russians at all. It was so bad that the nationalists formed a separate Russian commander unit in the Boer army and refused to allow Russian Jews to join it. Still, the Paris newspaper La Figaro described the vivid impression made by the Russians when they arrived in Pretoria. The town is full of foreigners. Arrive 25 January 1900. First of all, the Russian ambulance, white blouses and green belts. Colonel Gorko, the military attaché sent by the Tsar, iron-grey uniform, white helmet. One sees on the big square in Pretoria a Cossack lieutenant, black cape with red lining, boots and headgear of Astrakhan, the headwear of fur under our sun, makes an impression. A little curved Tata sword dangles at his legs. It was the Cossacks who were used by the Tsar to oppress Jewish Russians. The lieutenant described here was actually Lieutenant Colonel Maximov, who I'll talk a little more about at the end of the podcast. When the British captured the Russians fighting for the Boers, they would ship them back to Russia. And because many were Jewish who faced the oppression of pogroms, they faced this oppression once more. This callous action by London has never been fully recognized. It was clear, however, that the war office knew their fate, but thought they deserved the punishment. Some of the famous Russian Jews who fought for the Boers include Commandant Kaplan and Commandant Isaac Herman. Others, like Joseph Segal, who became known as Jackals, or Jackal, and Wolf Jacobson, who was known as Wolf, both acted as specialist scouts and were legendary amongst the Boers. Segal became a special advisor and secret agent for the Boer general Christian de Vett, for example. Unfortunately, the name Segal is now more associated with Steven Segal, the bloated friend of Russia who appears in B-grade action movies. But I digress. Another Jewish Russian was Benzian Aron, who was that personal friend of President Kruger. He helped set up a Jewish ambulance corps and bankrolled whole depots for the Boers. Furthermore, he ordered that Russian nationalists wounded by the British should be shown the same medical care by his corps as any other Boer, despite their fierce anti-Semitism. One of the lesser-known Russians was Evgeny Augustus, who was actually a gifted writer and who fought at the Battle of Spionkop. He arrived in Pretoria from Lithuania via Brussels and Mozambique and was hurriedly sworn into the Boer cause in broken Dutch and informed then that the Boer army had actually run out of Morza rifles, leaving him unarmed. He also quickly realized that the place had become what he says was a paradise for adventurers and rogues of all kinds. Among them, bogus volunteers who got endlessly re-equipped only to sell their arms and horses and then volunteer again. Nothing works as well as a black market in the midst of a war. 
plenty of the Russians were taken aback at the Boers' casual brutality towards black South Africans. One of these was the Georgian prince Nikolai Bagration, a descendant of Marshal Bagration, who had fought against Napoleon outside Moscow. And Prince Nikolai was so well-connected an aristocrat that he had represented Georgia at the Tsar's coronation. He became known as Niko the Boer. Before the war, he was involved in the usual upper-class swanning about in Africa big-game hunting expeditions when, in 1899, he heard that war had broken out. Prince Bagration felt an instinctive affinity with the Boers, who he saw as a lost white tribe in Africa, and his own people, the native Georgians, who he saw as marooned in a sea of Muslims. He had never heard of the Transvaal until 1899, and wrote that he, though, felt very much like my motherland, and I felt I must protect it. The first Russian volunteer to arrive in Pretoria, he was greeted with hugs by President Kruger and his generals, who fancied that he would win European support for their cause, he was so famous. And he was a giant of a man, well over six foot. He was attended by two Georgian servants who were referred to as Cossacks. He fought bravely and was eventually captured by the British and summoned by Lord Kitchener to explain his conduct. It apparently was a memorable confrontation in which the prince accused Kitchener of atrocities. He was promptly exiled to St. Helena, where Nico the Boer remained hugely cheerful among his fellow prisoners, organizing sports and other activities. After the war, he returned to Russia, where Prince Bogarshan showed similar courage in the face of the Bolsheviks, whom he detested, and he ended his days selling cigarettes in the marketplace in the Georgian capital, Tbilisi, still dressed in his princely garments. Some Russian aristocrats who came to fight were men of the left. Prince Mikhail Yangalichev, Ivan Zabolotny, and Alexander Essen all loathed the conservative monarchists of the Russian commando. On his return to Russia, Prince Yengelichev was placed under police surveillance for having tried to bring about a peasant uprising against the Tsar, while Zabolotny became a member of the First Duma. Essen was already a member of the anti-Tsar Russian Social Democrats when he arrived in Pretoria and was to play an active role in the 1905 revolution, where his underground alias was the Boer. Essen went on to become a leading Bolshevik and in the 20s was appointed deputy chairman of the Russian State Planning Committee under Lenin. Another Russian of the left who found the war a contradiction was volunteer Alexander Guchkov. He was a liberal idealist, grandson of a serf and son of a Moscow merchant. He had been at university in Moscow and Berlin and reacted to the Boer-British conflict much like other students in Europe, that is, with sympathy for the Boers. But he could not reconcile their treatment of black South Africans, although he hated the British Imperials more and overlooked this unfortunate reality. Guchkov survived the Boer War, travelled to China, where he fought in the Chinese Boxer Rebellion against the British, then returned to Russia. He helped found the Octoberist Party, and during the Russian Revolution of 1917, he became Minister of War in the Provisional Government. But, being a liberal, Guchkov's days were numbered, and by the end of 1917, he sought asylum abroad, along with Kerensky, who was his colleague. Don't you love this connection, left and right, imperial, revolutionary, all fighting for one group of farmers from South Africa? It's very strange. Perhaps the most tragic Russian figure, however, was the man known as the Russian Boer General. Lieutenant Colonel Yevgeny Maximov, the man with the curved Tatar sword spotted in Pretoria's main square, who seems to have had such extraordinary influence with Kruger and his generals that he was rumoured to have arrived in South Africa on a secret mission from the Russian government. Even after President Kruger was exiled to Holland, the aging Boer leader remained in touch with Maximov, thanking him for his bravery. 
Maximov was a professional soldier, an incredible horseman and marksman. He was so good, the Boers boasted about his almost miraculously good aim. On one occasion, he shot a springbok at 800 meters from a moving train. That cemented his mystique forever. He was the sort of man who fought on despite his wounds when most of his unit had been wiped out, which is what he did during the Anglo-Boer War. His background is rather murky. He was born in 1849 and he joined an elite Russian regiment when he turned 20. But at the age of 26, he took retirement from the army with a note on his service record referring to his shattered home circumstance, which included an attempted suicide by poison. This mystery darkened his career, and he spent the rest of his life trying to recover from that mistake. No sooner had he retired from the Russian army than he volunteered to fight for Serbia against Turkey. He then enlisted in the Russo-Turkish War. By 1880, he had joined the Russian campaign in Turkmenistan. A passionate conservative and monarchist, he was horrified by the Tsar's assassination in 1881 and joined the secret police in order to root out anarchists. This was to cause him trouble later. By 1895, he was fighting for the Ethiopians in the Italian-Ethiopian War, after which he volunteered to fight for the Greeks against the Turks. This was followed by a spell in Iran and Afghanistan, and it was from Afghanistan that he departed for the Transvaal in 1899. By mid-1900, though, he realized that the Boers would never win a conventional war against the British and decided to leave South Africa. His story after returning from the Anglo-Boer War is fascinating. Maximov was sitting in a train compartment traveling home through Russia with the mistresses of a number of prominent citizens and he openly disapproved of these women. The women in turn mocked him and he began arguing with one of their consorts called Prince Alexander St. Wittgenstein Bolleberg who happened to be a member of the Tsar's corps of personal bodyguards. The prince naturally challenged him to a duel. Unfortunately for the prince, he did not know that Maximov could shoot a springbok from a moving train, let alone a man standing stock still 30 meters away. In the following duel, poor Prince St. Wittgenstein Bolleberg missed, but Maximov did not, killing him outright. Maximov received a two-year sentence for the duel, but a public outcry led to his early release. Then Prince St. Wittgenstein Bolleberg's friends tried to kill him with poison and threw him out of a third-floor window in Moscow. He survived. When the Russo-Japanese War broke out in 1904, the 55-year-old Anglo-Boer War veteran volunteered. This is where Maximov's luck finally ran out. He lasted two days fighting at the Mukden front before he was shot dead by Japanese troops, along with half his regiment. Let us say he lived and died by the sword. Like other members of the ruling class in Europe who fought for the Boers, such as the Frenchman Villebar Moriel, Maximov had fought for nationalism and to defend a conservative way of life that had no future. Yet, like others, he also spent his life escaping a country which did not accept him and which was far too stifling and bureaucratic for a spirit such as his. Those who survived the Anglo-Boer and Russo-Japanese wars died either in the First World War or the Civil War following the revolution in 1917. The few Russians who managed to make it through that carnage then fell during Stalin's purges and then fighting the Germans during the Second World War. As R.W. Johnson writes, none of these Anglo-Boer War veterans seems to have survived past 1945. What is remarkable to me at least is how modern some of these stories sound. The rise of European nationalism, the role of Cossack-type troops in the Ukraine, anti-Semitism on the rise. Modern-day nationalism is basically a spitting image.
The concept of a nation's pride, the conspiracy theories reinforced by social media echo chambers, the role of dubious military personnel popping up in regions like Venezuela, Serbia, Turkey, Syria, Ukraine. And as you and I know, history teaches us that humans respond in patterns of behavior and we're watching a familiar pattern right now. The contemporary character of the Anglo-Boer War continues to surprise, does it not? With that rhetorical question, we end this week. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes and to send any comments through the contact details on the website abwarpodcast.com. I'm ending the podcast with the Russian tune that glorified the Boers of the Transvaal and was probably one of the best-known tunes of the early 20th century in Russia. It's called Transvaal, Transvaal, My Country and was used by the Soviets as a propaganda rallying call during the terrible sieges of Stalingrad and Leningrad. Until next week, goodbye. Трансвал, трансвал, страна моя, ты вся горишь в огне, под деревом развесистым, задумчив бур сидел, под деревом развесистым, задумчив бур сидел, о чем тоскуешь тайна? Чего задумчив ты, Тоскую я по родине, Мне жаль родной земли. Тоскую я по родине, Мне жаль родной земли. Сынок, ведь десять у меня, Троих уж нет.